This is Movie Land with CJ Johnson. Hello and welcome to Movie Land. I'm CJ Johnson. Thank you for joining me. Christmas is coming and with it another big Christmas comedy. It's called Why Him? It's directed by John Hamburg and written by John Hamburg and Ian Helfer. And both John Hamburg and Ian Helfer join me on the line from Los Angeles to talk about it. But first, let me just say also, you need to watch my new web TV show called Why... It's not called Why Him, it's called Watch This. Called Watch This, find it by Googling... Watch this and Skippy TV. It's on the Skippy TV web network, S-K-I-P-I dot TV. So just go to S-K-I-P-I dot TV and you'll find all the episodes of Watch This. We've done three so far. You can watch them for free. I hope you enjoy them. Follow us on Facebook too. Go to Facebook and find the Watch This TV show. You can find it specifically at Watch This TV show, at Watch This TV show. Episode three is entirely devoted to Jim Flanagan and I discussing Rogue One, a Star Wars story. So you'll definitely want to go check that out. You can finally see what I look like and what Jim looks like. We're funny looking. If you really don't want to watch that and you want to find out what I thought of Rogue One after this interview with John and Ian, I will give my review of Rogue One. But first, John Hamburg, director, and Ian Helfer, co-writer of Why Him, which opens in the United States on December 23rd and in Australia on December 26th. Your film is getting released on Christmas Day in the United States. It is a Christmas movie. It is set around Christmas. There are scenes of people buying Christmas trees. But when you started writing this, there was no way you knew that it was going to be released on Christmas Day, did you? We didn't know when the movie was going to be released. It's actually being released on the 23rd, so two days before Christmas uh, in the States. But... but, um, but we did make it a – we set the movie – the story originally wasn't set over Christmas, and we did choose to set it over the holidays. And whenever you set a movie over the holidays, you're hopeful it will be released sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So uh, when you say it wasn't – yep, sorry. Oh, sorry, I was going to say from a you know, story perspective, we liked the idea. It seemed organic that you know, Brian Cranston's character, Ned, would go visit – over the holidays, and then it kind of had this great ticking clock of that, you know, he says he's going to, you know, win him over by Christmas Day. So that, that was kind of the genesis of it. It's a good holiday to pick in terms of the United States because you can then effectively show a visual difference between the two of them by Cranston's world being snowy and freezing cold and Franco's world being sunny, even though it's Christmas. Yeah. We like that idea that, you know, you only really know that Ian and I both grew up on the East Coast where Christmas uh, holidays, it's cold, there's snow, you know, a lot of the country, frankly, that's what it is. And, but when you go to warm weather, it's it's just, and you're used to cold weather, it's a very surreal experience to experience the holidays and it's 70 degrees and sunny outside. And that felt like just yet another thing where our Ned character, Brian Cranston and his family could feel, you know, 
uneasy, out of out of place. There's a nice moment when they're in the car coming from the airport and Megan Mahale's character talks about how beautiful it is. And what that says is that they don't travel much, even within their own country, that this is their first time to California, which feels as exotic <laughs> to them as Tahiti. Uh, yeah, I think that that was kind of the idea. We, um, you know, we, I think Ned is supposed to have taken Stephanie out to Stanford but I definitely don't think that there are people who spend a lot of time like hanging out in California. You know, they're, they have Christmas. I, I, I think it's in there that they have Christmas every year in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where they're from. So they certainly spend the holidays at home every year. And this sort of gets us to the, the sort of brunt of the difference between Cranston and Franco's characters and worlds. I mean, obviously, no one in the film ever, as far as I could tell, says a single thing to do with politics. But when Americans see this film, yeah. Trump voters are going to relate to Cranston and non-Trump voters are going to relate to Franco. Do you think that's actually going to give it a, a sort of a weird new reading? <laughs> I mean, I think the truth of the matter is, as we've seen in this election and we've known for many years, you know, the country is quite divided. Um, and I don't think Ian and I wanted to imbue this movie with politics. I think it was more tapping into the fact that there are really, you know, to stereotype two really different viewpoints um, in the country. Uh, you know, a more conservative viewpoint and a, and a more liberal viewpoint. And yeah, I mean, these, it, it's sort of surreal that this movie is being released, you know, as President-elect Trump is getting ready to be sworn into office. But um it's kind of a byproduct of, of the whole thing. I don't think we really consciously thought about it. Yeah, I think we were probably dealing with our own feelings of, of you know, like, you know, becoming obsolete in the world, you know. Um, uh, and, uh, and it just so happened that then the whole world started to deal with these feelings of people becoming obsolete and the world changing around them. So it kind of, I think it kind of caught up with us. I've followed the progression of this project for a long time because I know you guys personally and Ian... You originally described it to me way before shooting as, you know, this this proper normal American Midwestern guy and his daughter is essentially dating Mark Zuckerberg. But over the course of time, he's not quite Mark Zuckerberg because he's not the biggest tech guy in the entire world. And also he's covered with tattoos and has a potty mouth. And at some point he became not Mark Zuckerberg, who the world sees as very straight-laced. Right. Well, for, for me, I mean, I, I think that was um, Zuckerberg was a touchstone for that crazy tech world, you know? Mm. Um, uh, you know, he's kind of a hybrid of Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, sort of a hip-hop video game, you know, some James Franco in there. You know, like, we, we it seemed like the fun was to make him this really eccentric interesting interesting guy so the, the, the goal was never to make him like the king of silicon valley the way zuckerberg was even though i, I guess i said that i like what that you said that there was a bit of james franco in there i i do feel that the movie kind of riffs on james franco's persona yeah i mean you know i think it's certainly playing on what people who only know james from his projects and his instagram feed frankly um <laughs> you know <laughs> what what they might think of him. Obviously, we you know most people don't really know James Franco. Um, you know, I directed him in a movie. I'm not sure I really know him. Uh, I like him very much, but 
Um, yeah, I think we were playing on a guy, you know, James has this persona where he's a bit mysterious and a bit deaf and pushed the envelope um, and yet is very charming and winning and compelling. Um, and so I think certainly in the, with the character and then, of course, casting James, we were, we were, you know, not relying on, but I would say embracing what the world knows of the James, of the public James Franco persona. And what about Silicon Valley? I mean, it was it, it was nice to see you sort of target Silicon Valley, but combine it with essentially this this grungier aesthetic than than, for example, the television show Silicon Valley. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we were really consciously trying. I mean, I guess I had said Mark Zuckerberg, but not to just play him as a kind of nerdy jerk. I think there's a lot of uh, how that world, I guess, gets portrayed in movies and TV shows these days. I, guess, I mean, there's some, you know, it's different in the TV show Silicon Valley. But, um, but yeah, we wanted to, uh, to make a really kind of warm-hearted, eccentric guy and not just really play on the stereotypes of, of you know, like Mark Zuckerberg and, and, you know, is always portrayed in the Facebook movie anyway as a sort of like uncaring, sort of almost like autistic kind of a guy. And, and we wanted to do something different than that. Um, that would be really fun for a guy like James to play. Well, yeah, they're totally different because Zuckerberg and his ilk are portrayed as not being needy, as not needing human connection, whereas basically yeah. um, Franco's character is all need. That's all he wants is human, <laughs> is human connection and human love. Yeah, that's it. It, it. You know, it was sort of tapping into the idea of we read about these young men and women who seem to have it all. You know, they're wealthier than than any of us can imagine. And they have cool jobs and they can wear flip-flops to work. You know, maybe their office is their couch and a laptop. Even those folks, um, they don't have it all. And I think we were we we were sort of tapping into that idea of this guy that you you know, you think he has he has life figured out, but what he really wants is something that this nice Midwestern family has, which is just, you know a family, deep-rooted connections and respect for each other. And he's kind of lonely at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, I think we also like the idea of doing a guy who was not, you know, like uh, a Harvard guy, um, you know, who, who wasn't like an Ivy League or an MIT, Caltech kind of guy. But, you know, we started talking a lot about people who would grow up in Silicon Valley during this tech boom. And, um, you know, that's Laird's character is a guy who, who grew up kind of in the shadow of Apple and, that shaped his whole world. I don't, you know, he never even went to college. And so we, we were trying to, you know, kind of take a look at it from an angle that we felt like, you know, we hadn't seen that many of those characters from who were portrayed like that. He is lacking what his girlfriend has, which is parents, basically. And you just obliquely mention his backstory without ever going, going there and getting too heavy. Did you ever have sort of a bigger backstory of why he is essentially an orphan in this world? As I recall, we we talked about, you know, when you're writing, obviously you talk about many different things and we probably sketched out more ideas. You know, but in movies, the more movies I make, I find that if you've done the right work and have the right casting, that audiences get it. You don't need to hit them over the head with tons of backstory. It was important that Laird reveal pretty quickly, pretty early on that he 
doesn't really have a family, that he never knew his father, and that became kind of a running joke in the movie, um, and that he's not father of the Fleming family, Cranston's family. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, we had that bit of backstory that he dropped out of college or dropped out of high school. And there's something in the movie, not to give everything away, but where he, you kind of find out um, why he has a challenging relationship with his mother. And that we feel like you got a lot of the character from those, from those beats that are peppered throughout. So there's no, there's nothing on the cutting room floor of Franco crying on the floor, screaming, mummy, daddy, mummy, daddy. <laughs> he basically does that subtextually the entire movie. So we didn't think you actually needed a scene where, <laughs> where you see him doing that. I actually did think it was going to go there. When, when I first cottoned on to the fact that, oh, he needs this because he doesn't have it, I thought, oh, there's going to be a heavy scene. And I'm, I'm kind of glad you didn't include it. Okay. I can guarantee had we shot that scene, it would have been on the editing room floor. No question. John, obviously this film shares huge themes and character relationships with Meet the Parents. Have you stressed out meeting your partner's father? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I do get asked that because of my involvement in the Meet the Parents movies um, and this one, which is like a reverse Meet the Parents. You know, it's a it's an op. It's Meet the Parents, you know, on its on its head. Um, No, I get along great with my in-laws. I think it's, I never really had any problems with them. Um, you know, they, they come from a slightly different uh, cultural background, so there's certain differences. Um, but we, I'm, I'm lucky. I didn't have any De Niro's in my life or, you know, or I, in this version, it, Cranston is really the relatable one and Franco's the nut job. So I'm going to say my in-laws also had an easy time when they met me because I find myself to be very uh, congenial and easy going. <laughs> um, was there a lot of improvisation in the movie? Yeah, there there was a lot. Um, you know, we worked, Ian and I worked really hard um, to make the script as good as we could and worked with the actors and revised a lot and put their point of view into the movie, which was really helpful and great. And the, the script kept getting better. Uh, and then, you know, my directing style is on the day you shoot the script script and some scenes are exactly as written pretty much um and then others you just you take it to different places and try different things and you know everybody shouts different things out or has different ideas it's a best idea wins kind of scenario and you never know what you're going to find i hadn't really other stuff that i've worked on as a writer that directors haven't done as much of that and it's a it's a really great process because there there's some really 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 funny stuff in the movie that you know it's just totally a product of i mean what john was doing but also having these really funny actors who, who you know in their own way are kind of great writers you know and so it, <laughs> it, I, I, I it's like i kind of can't imagine doing a comedy and not doing that because you're just leaving so much on the on the table you know because they're so talented so to just say like you've got to you know do the scene that we wrote seven months ago, you know, like just seems seems really silly since they have so much to add to it. I'm assuming this is going out as an R in the United States? It is. Yep, okay. R-rated. <laughs> is that something that you knew from the beginning? And so the, did you therefore write to an R? Yes. I mean, I, I worked on PG, PG-13, R, and um, certainly I found with, with I Love You, Man, which I directed that the R rating just allowed me to make exactly the movie that I wanted to make. And <clears throat> with this story, 
Laird, you know, Franco's character is unfiltered. And it's very hard to make a PG-13, which, is, which means very little cursing in, in America, um, with an unfiltered character. So had we had a different character, maybe more of a Mark Zuckerberg type, we probably could have made it PG-13. Um, but once we, we had this layered character who is edgy, who does use, you know, it's not that he's not using language to get a rise. He's using it because no one ever taught him that using the F word three times in four seconds is not really that appropriate when you're with uh, your girlfriend's parents. So he needed to have no filter for the character and, and thus the R rating. And I just found as a director, uh, the R rating you know, it, it, it just gives you a lot of freedom and you can explore a lot of things. Do we ever, yeah, I don't think we ever explicitly discuss, I think we kind of just went away and wrote an R movie. And uh, that's kind of what it became when they saw, you know, what John was saying, when they saw Laird's character and I think understood that the language in the movie is coming from character. I, I feel like that was, you know, it wasn't just obligatory. So I think that they were, they were fine with it. You've tossed in, unless I miss them, you've tossed in two or three Re- um, references to Home Alone, but no other Christmas movies. So first I thought you were going to constantly show Christmas movies and therefore say, we also want to be a perennial Christmas movie. But instead you just did Home Alone. Is that Was that just the Christmas movie thing or were you saying that Laird is essentially Home Alone? <laughs> wow. Wow. CJ, th- you're, you're um, asking questions on levels. Maybe Ian's thought of it. I can guarantee I haven't thought of that. Um, it's nice though. That's going to be a great uh, in your book of essays someday. Along with John Hamburg's troubled relationship with his in-laws. Exactly. Yeah, CJ, absolutely. We were making a metaphorical statement about um, the loneliness of being a Silicon Valley billionaire um, by using the Macaulay Culkin classic. Um, no, is it okay know, if I use that? We have to do a couple more of these. Can I say that it's about Franco being home alone? <laughs> of course yeah. you can. As yeah, long as I get this out there first. Absolutely. No, he, um, yeah, it was just that, you know, we, in, there's one scene in the movie where a family is watching a holiday movie, as many families do. And, and I think we wrote it originally to be the Grinch. And, um, you know, we like the idea of Home Alone, and and part of the idea is there's a character named Kevin in the movie, and we love the idea of having the actress in Home Alone say Kevin, and then you see our guy named Kevin, and it felt like it's a movie that families watch on on over the holidays. So that was kind of it. I finally got a very mundane question for you: When a character is as tattooed as James Franco's character is, and he spends as much of his time on screen with his shirt off as James Franco's character does. What happens there? Do they get tattoos that last for six weeks? How does that work? Um, that, that is a good question. We spent a lot of time figuring out all of James's fake tattoos and they don't last six weeks. They last a few days and you need to keep touching them up. But, um, it's a process. I mean, the, at the beginning of the week, you know, you have to take a while to put them on and then they get, they fade over the course of the week. Um, you know, that's why you'll, you will see some days where James's character is in long sleeves because it's just frankly less work for everybody to do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a great time and have a very Merry Christmas. Thank you. Thank you, CJ. This is Bruce Beresford and you're listening to Movie Land. 
And now a review of Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. Gareth Edwards and, it must be acknowledged, Tony Gilroy's Rogue One, A Star Wars Story is sensational. A thrilling, spectacularly crafted action-adventure tale set in the Star Wars universe. Unburdened by the weight of expectation and J.J. Abrams' almost pathological addiction to fan service, this standalone romp is more fun, more thrilling and just a better movie than The Force Awakens. If you don't know by now that the plot involves stealing the plans for the original Death Star, you're probably not particularly interested in seeing the film. It's a terrific story idea, though, allowing Edwards and his unbelievably talented team to assemble a motley crew on a stealthy raid with stakes as big as the universe. Essentially, the model here is The Dirty Dozen, and so many films that came after, involving a wartime assault by a small group with big hearts against, well, Nazis. Because that's what the Empire is, right? Stormtroopers and all. The film looks, feels, sounds and smells astonishingly like a Star Wars film, right down to its grain. In this, it neither surpasses nor underperforms against The Force Awakens, which would have been responsible for constructing all the tech that allow these films to be so evocative of the texture of Lucas's original three movies. It has the right rhythms, the right dialogue style, and the right kind of story beats. But unlike Force Awakens, which was, let's face it, a remake of A New Hope, the first one from 1977, the story here is fresh. It also doesn't seek to aspire to being epic with a capital E, and so feels a lot tighter and more structurally satisfying. The tone is more serious, or dare I use that dreaded word, darker. Force Awakens was so jam-packed with jokes as to be potentially labelled comedic. Rogue One has very few. These people have too much on their minds to crack wise. Jin, Felicity Jones, continuing the series' fetish for very petite, posh British brunettes, has a missing father who has designed a genocide machine. Cassian, Diego Luna has, in one of the film's rather excellent dialogue moments, been fighting against the Empire since I was six years old. Even this film's droid, K2SO, Alan Tudyk, but doing an English accent, is no nonsense and also kicks butt. He's also ugly. Rogue One scrupulously avoids the cute. Characters from A New Hope appear, including, astonishingly, Peter Cushing's Grand Moff Tarkin, and not just for a moment, but in whole scenes with many lines of dialogue. This is the most extended use of a dead actor's likeness I have yet seen. There was a hint of uncanny valley to this most special of special effects, but I'm willing to bet a teenager who didn't know Cushing died in 1994 wouldn't pick it. It's pretty amazing, and actors' equity should be very, very afraid. Jones and Luna have superb chemistry. As they fell for each other... I fell for them. It's hard to describe how satisfying Rogue One is. As craftsmanship and storytelling, it's superb, but it is something else, something magical. It really does offer a kind of welcome regression to the thrill of the movies as only children experience them. Perhaps seeing it on my birthday had some influence on my state of mind, but I felt like a kid again, giddy with pleasure, excitement and a warm heart. I guess, like I felt after seeing the first one. What higher praise for a Star Wars story can there be? That's my review of Rogue One. Obviously, I loved it. 
I hope you do too. Have a very Merry Christmas, and I look forward to joining you again with Movie Land in the new year. Straight up, I suppose, I'll be offering my um, best films of 2016. But until then, take care and make sure you see many movies at the cinema over this holiday period. It's Christmas time There's no need to be afraid At Christmas time We let in light And we banish shade And in our world Of plenty We can spread a smile of joy Fill your arms around the world At Christmas time But say Class.